Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome back. Welcome back to Coaching Inside the Box, episode 18. What a day to be alive. Guys, the World Cup draw is tomorrow. All of our home countries have now qualified. USA had a successful loss last night, putting them into pot two of the World Cup. So their draw might actually be decent, right? We know we're gonna have, they're going to have Ghana and two other countries in their group. Um, for me, the World Cup is the greatest month of every four years. Like, I absolutely love the World Cup. I spend months leading up to the World Cup reading and thinking about the World Cup and taking pictures of soccer things leading up to the World Cup. I just absolutely love it. Is it the same for you guys? Like, do you guys just geek out on the World Cup the months leading up, the month during? Well, let's hold that thought a minute. Yeah. Because when you talked about a successful loss, I had a vision of you as a youth soccer player. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of successful losses. Meaning, I dribble seven guys and sky it over the net. Yeah, yeah, or you know, or get tackled by the eighth, you know. That was literally the only outcome was an unsuccessful outcome, <laughs> you know. So I guess the U.S. improved on you know on you when you were a child. Correct. I never made it to a World Cup. <laughs> I'm actually excited to see well, the you U.S. Never had a I'm actually I'm actually excited to see the U.S. in the World Cup. To be honest with I you, mean, they're young with some talent. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I I think the U.S. has a bunch of like average players, like European level average players, which is good. You're missing like the difference maker, which I hey, think listen to the Brazilian here, yeah, yeah, especially yeah. average it's, players. Yeah, it's no, it's, it's true, a different though. perspective, isn't it? You know, when I you mean, grow up in Brazil, besides, you know, besides anybody that can't do three marathon turns is average. <laughs> no, besides Pulisic, nobody plays that you know, an important, like, essential role in a big club. Am I wrong? Not yet. You're right. Yeah. yeah so, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, with that said, I noticed Pulisic tried two Maradonas unsuccessfully, but two Maradonas in the last three games in the last window. So, that's exciting. Things are looking up, you know, yeah. especially with Gio Reyna, you know, starting to, you know, dribble, dribble like a fool, which is great. I love his wrong. attitude. And he's yeah. 19. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's, he's uh, one, one to watch for the future. Sure. Hopefully his coaches at the club level who have the major influence on him do not destroy that confidence and that willingness to, you know, to take the responsibility. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because he could be the real breaker for the U.S. You know, after what I've seen recently. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I'm excited for Brazil too. These last two games in the qualifying made me very, very, very happy and hopeful. Like these new new kids that are coming in, they're so good. They're so good. I'm hoping for a US Brazil group. Yeah, I wouldn't if I were you. <laughs> it, did <laughs> did anybody qualified. did anybody uh you know like notice the clutching at straws aspect of Philippe's comments just then? You know, the this is the Brazilian hoping and praying that they've got players that are good enough to be Brazilian. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanna win, man. In in Brazil, you're talking about World Cup. In Brazil, we say that the second place is the first of the lasts. So it's being, the first loser, right? Yeah. Okay. If you, I'd love if to be the first loser at this it, next World Cup. Yeah. I'd, I'd take it and run. If Brazil <laughs> make all the way to the final and lose in PKs, it, it's still a war in Brazil for the next three, four months. Like, they, we just can't accept the loss. So, we, I mean, it's about time. We, we, we got to do it. You say PKs. Did you see the footage of Egypt and Senegal's PKs? I love it. I, I think oh, that. Did you I see it? it. No, you didn't, didn't see it. No. So it was at Senegal. Uh, Mo Salah takes, I believe, the, the, the deciding PK, and his entire face is green from laser pens throughout the whole lead up to the PK and through the PK. And All the fans behind the, the, the goal are like laser pens with in laser his beams face. in his face. He couldn't have seen. There's no way he could have seen. I can't believe they let it stand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> nuts. Those are the things that happen in Africa, South America. People throwing stuff. I mean, and they're creative, man. They're creative. Now it's laser beams. Now with metaverse coming in, I don't know what they're gonna think of, but they're gonna be creative and put some I, obstacles I, to players. So, Senegal went to the World Cup. <laughs> yeah. 
And <laughs> I, I, a lot. no, no, there's there's something bigger at work here because you know Saudi Omani is such a good guy mm-hmm. that you know that 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 was divine inf- intervention. You know, it's laser pointer. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, the laser of God, of course, the hand of God, laser. It had of God. to be channeled through humans. Oh, okay. you know, yeah, but <laughs> they did it because God told them to. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> That's because Mana is a good guy. You know, yeah. it's the energy you put out there, you get back. So, but you you used the word <laughs> obstacle, which is a good segue into today's episode, because specifically the title of today's episode is Elimin- Eliminating Prejudices in Youth Soccer, right? Obstacles in youth soccer that get in the way of access or greater access to better development opportunities for players. Um, and um, I think it's part of this. This discussion is a fun discussion. It's a discussion that's hap- that I think has had often but it's what makes our sport the greatest. It's such a world's game and culturally we're so different that if we look at Brazil and the obstacles that get in the way of access to the game versus the United States and obstacles that exist to get in the way of, of, of access for, for the game for youth versus England versus, you know, Senegal um, or Egyptians in Senegal and laser pens, right? Those obstacles all exist are different. Um, and is uh, uh, the plan today is to really dig into, from a youth perspective, some of those prejudices or obstacles that exist that limit our, our youth from accessing the game and accessing the great, greatest developmental opportunities within the game, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, Getting into that is a skin crawler. And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of people that are going to be listening that are going to feel distinctly uncomfortable with a whole bunch of the things that we're going to discuss. You know, yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. The, this is, you know, a lot of people look at the things that we're you know, going to d- discuss. They don't want to deal with those things. You know, they, they want to leave that thing in the closet. You know, instead of bringing it out, you know, and, and dealing with, you know, the broken bones and the blood and the mess that, you know, that is involved in these controversial issues. Actually, I think in some in some respects, they're happy to discuss them, but offer no solutions. Right. They're, like in the United States on soccer Twitter, from a youth soccer Twitter perspective, everybody loves to talk about how expensive the game is and how much travel is involved in playing these elite national leagues. But then everybody's very much at the same time, happy to go along to get along and just to hope to be a part of the party rather than offer viable concrete solutions that, that, that increase the the level of access to players um, that maybe don't have the greatest financial means to access it in the United States. Yeah. A lot of people just take a wait and see approach, you know, and uh, you know, I've noticed that, for example, with global warming, not to get into you know big political issues, you know the you know the why don't we just let it you know play out the way it's been going? Well, you know according to the ninety eight percent of the science you know the scientific ex- experts in the world, if we let it play out, the you know the Earth's going to fry within a thousand years. <laughs> That's why we don't let it play out. And that's why I like you know, the FIFA. That's why I like FIFA. They're so forward thinking, right? They've planned a World Cup in Qatar just so we know what it's going to be like across the rest <laughs> of the world in a few decades. I mean, I really, I, you know, FIFA takes a bad rap, but really I think they're so forward thinking, at least in this respect. Yeah, there was no money involved in that decision at all. You, <laughs> no, know, it, no. you know, it's just for the good of the game. You <laughs> just know. taking the game to yeah. unique places in the world, <laughs> giving opportunity to these people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so really we're talking about access, right? And for me, access is everything, right? Players, their access that they have to the game, to the the best parts of the developmental aspects of the game, um, and the better development, right? Um, and I think every country has unique examples. Going back to one of my favorite episodes that we've done, episode two, Ashington, England, I think that's a perfect example um, of really kind of what we're talking about. And for those that have listened, if you haven't listened to episode two, go back and listen to it. It's a fantastic episode. But Ashington, England, punched above their weight, developed a a, a significant number of of professional footballers from this little bitty town um, in the north northeast of England um, and three player Jack Jack Charlton Bobby Charlton and another fellow that was Jimmy Adams Jimmy Adams uh, Adamson um, those three guys fantastic players but then Ashington it fell off the map as soon as cars started parking in the streets and this perfect street soccer environment disappeared because access to the greatest developmental advantage that those players had was gone 
Um, and I think Ashington is a perfect example of that. Another example here in the United States is the the ODP of the 80s and 90s, especially the 80s and 90s, where if you weren't the biggest, strongest, fastest player in the trial at regionals, you weren't going to make the pool. Like, period, end of story, regardless of your skill set. Well, here's a story for you. When I was director of coaching for the state of Kansas, uh, I persuaded a number of low-income kids to get involved with the ODP program. And this is interesting because they couldn't afford to. So uh, I had to go to the state board and actually set up a scholarship program for the low-income kids that wanted to try out so that if they did make it to you know the and, and of course there was an entry fee just to try out you know that they couldn't afford their families couldn't afford so that was waived you know and then we provided a scholarship for the kids that were good enough to go to you know the the regional camp you know and try out for the national team you know and some of these kids were the best players in the state but would never have been able to even try out for the program if they had been asked to pay the money to try out that's you know, one of the you know the the topical you know, examples from here in Kansas City, from history, you know, and you know, and so, you know, these are things we've got to fix within our model, you know. So, so I, I have four big areas that I'd like to discuss today, and this is coming from the notes that that, that you we had shared back and forth this week leading up to this recording, um, but the first one is 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 the physical side of it, right? Um, and I, we've all read the stats, Andy. You may even have the stats in front of you, right? In terms of the number of players that 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 come from the first six months of an age group that play at the highest level, um, how it's disproportionate. It's a significantly higher number January through June versus July through December. And it's you know it's, it's, no, it's no no secret that it's because those players mature quicker and at a younger age, and the more mature players are getting greatest greater access. Um, to the game, <laughs> is there a difference from a physical limitation perspective between players that are getting access to higher level teams, more elite uh, uh, level development opportunities in the United States versus England or Brazil based on size and speed and, 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 and maturity level? Yeah, it's been proven, you know, statistically that if you're born in the earlier months of a, of a specific you know, uh, year, whether the cutoff is, you know, is December the 31st or the cutoff is uh, in line with the school year. Uh, however, that is done, and it's been done both ways here in soccer in the, over the last, you know, 30 years. Uh, it's proven that the people that have that age advantage, the older kids, have that extra maturity, and that has led the stats to, to uh, work tremendously in, in, the favor of the older player versus the younger player just because of, you know, physical and psychological maturity, you know, and, and then it's been proven that once you're on that track, once you've been accepted into uh, a program like ODP, you know, where maturity has a, a big influence on whether you're selected in the first place, it's conclusively proven that that helps you go to the next level again and the next level again. Once, once you've opened you know, one level of door, it gives you access to the next level above it. But without opening that first door, you can't jump a level and go to the next level above it. So that's the player that has the advantages, the player that is more physiologically mature. Yeah, yeah in Brazil, it's, it's a big, big, big problem. Um, exactly the same thing the first uh, months of the year produce the most amount of players that make to the highest level uh, in brazil and i think in europe is the same way each age group in the academy system it's every two years so when you're on the younger year of the two years you are ready you know a year younger you're giving up quite a bit physically. yeah so if you're from december you're playing against kids that are two years older pretty much so there's literally no way you're going to play that year. So then the next year, you're going to be, if you're from December, you're middle of the pack. So you've got, you've got a chance. But the kids that are born uh, the first months of the year, they have a big, big, big advantage. But the way the Brazil does it, for example, it's already set up in the academy system that one, you're going to have one year that you're not going to play much. You're going to practice a ton and improve and learn you know, and train with kids 
older and bigger than you and stronger. And then the next year, when you're the older year, then you get to play more. So it's already set up that that way, and that's part of uh, of their development um, kind of methodologies. Like one year, you're pretty much just gonna train, and then the next year, you're gonna play. So I was kind of wondering because I know for you, your play was all. Uh, it was not organized. It wasn't organized play. It was a lot of free play growing up until you hit a certain age, 15 or whatever, that Correct. you finally went on to academy. And, and in that, those free play things, everybody has access to the same level of play. Yes. And so I was wondering if because of the freedom that exists within the younger ages at Brazil, in Brazil, if that culture actually cultivates uh, or provides greater access maybe not the greatest access it's not perfect access but greater access to players that mature later versus here in the united states where we're keeping score and having you know national champions at, at u7 u8 oh i think it makes the difference in order to make the academies because once you make an academy uh back home like a big club academy i mean you're pretty much talking a clear path to pro right that's not till 13 14 years younger i mean it starts at 11 i mean even if you look at futsal the big clubs have like u7 and stuff like that so kids obviously they are older they get the advantage but you're right kids in brazil they are already they have that background of free play street soccer you know even if they are you know already in, in an academy at that age they still you know Play a lot of free. Play a lot of free, you know, and play against the older kids. So that that kind of exchange within the ages and you're always playing, you know, I think it levels up a little bit. But again, the opportunity to make the highest level, to train at the highest level, you know, when you're training in a Brazilian academy, I mean, it's every single day you barely go to school. You're soccer immersive. So... If to get that chance, obviously kids that are younger struggle more. I mean, we're committed to, in this episode specifically to talk about solutions. And uh, Andy, this wasn't one that I necessarily think that you were planning on talking about, but I think back to our team specifically, the 83-84 Legends, and to use Corey Farabi as an example, Corey growing up was by far and away the smallest kid on our team um matured later um i think physically than most of the team um and in fact he was quite late he didn't grow into his adult body until he was probably a junior or senior in high school um and Corey was drafted to play in the mls and played you know four years at, at drake university division one and it's a perfect example of the solution that we had to, that you had to that to our team was 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 a commitment to once you were in the team you were in the team you weren't going to cut players at the end of a 12-month cycle because some other somebody else has a beard first and they're faster than you are, right? You were committed to us as players, um, uh, pro provided we, we were able to access the game in, a, in a, uh, a challenging way with our teammates, which we all were. And so it gave Corey the ramp for his body to catch up um, with the rest of us. And eventually, you know, obviously he... He got drafted by the MLS. I didn't. And so at, at you know, 13, 14, physically, I was significantly ahead of Corey. But he, he was a better player than I was by the end. Yeah. And the, the key, uh, recognizing that, that because of age, which is something that, that uh, is an unfair gauge of ability, you know, age and maturity. Um, and, and what we've got to realize is that, you know, when you get pulled up to a state select team because of your maturity, you receive greater recognition, um, better coaching, uh, and as a consequence, greater motivation. You know, and uh, likewise, when you're rejected, it goes the other way. You know, you get actually less recognition. You get probably in most situations worse coaching, and so your opportunity to go further in the game is damaged by being rejected and enhanced significantly. There's two sides to this coin. One is incredibly motivational, one is incredibly demotivational. You know, and and the the way that the old street soccer world used to work was everybody played, everybody played all the time. There wasn't anybody deciding who should play where. So everybody had equal opportunity to develop their skills, develop their physiology, 
de- develop their attitude, their intensity, you know, and, you know, that's what we produce in our club. You know, we're not looking at winning games as the first priority. We're looking at what's right for every single individual, you know, under our umbrella. And, you know, eventually we know that, you know, there's an old saying, water finds its own level. You know, we know that everything else being equal, you know, the ones that put the most effort in, work hardest on their skills, you know, in this system are going to rise to the top. You know, and the ones that don't, you know, are going to gradually slide down the scale. And here's the thing about our solutions, which is giving everybody the chance to be included in everything, you know, crossing practices, crossing teams, you know, and, and but always playing one-on-ones, two-on-twos, three-on-threes, working on their technique in the soccer boxes. We realize that our solutions are the most optimizing solutions to this problem, you know, because we're not looking at winning the next game. We're not looking at, you know, boasting about our team around the water cooler on Monday morning, you know, which is what most people are thinking of. Let let me build off that a little bit and describe the session I ran last night. So (laughs) last night I ran a session that and I run it every Wednesday um, and I had 25 kids in total, give or take. I had five or six girls born in 2013. So you nine girls. I had four or five boys born in 2013. I had seven or eight boys born in 2012. And then I had, I think, nine or probably seven or eight boys born in 2010. So the session was, it was 1v1 session, right? Like all my sessions are. But from the outside of looking in, it's like, this is like to make, give these girls and these younger boys greater access to the game, we're lowering the standards of the 2010s. But that's not the case at all. My son, who's a 2010, who's a Corey Farabi, a complete runt, physically uh, uh, not nearly as mature as everybody else, I'm able to match him up with kids that give him the best opportunity for success, right? But not total success, half success, half success, half failure, because that's what optimizes development. For the girls, they're able to match up. In, in fact, I had a, a few girl matchups in the 1v1s where they played Owen Mallon. Owen Mallon's five foot nine, 2010. He's very gentle by nature, giant kid though, and that's the 1v1 matchup. And it was 50% success failure for both the 2013 girl and for Owen. And so it, it, it optimizes the access for every player within the session during those 1v1s. Likewise, I had Sam Krause. Sam Krause is the best 2013 soccer player I have ever seen. He spent the entire night playing against largely the best 2010s there. It optimized the opportunity for Sam. If I'd had a session of only 2013s for Sam, it wouldn't have challenged him in the same way. Likewise, I had kids on the 2010 team that are lower level that need to be playing against younger teams. And so I think the mistake that's oftentimes made by coaches is they focus entirely too much on their team and keeping their team in this super nuclear way, right, in this perfect way to win the game on the weekend. And they don't think in a broader perspective of using training from a long-term perspective and including a bunch of different players of varying levels to increase the access and then optimize, improve the developmental opportunity for every kid that's on the field, top to bottom. Can, can Can I add to that? Yeah. Well, you've got this mentality within our soccer society of... Yes, I might play for this club, but I really play for this club in name only. You know, my team is separate completely from the rest of the club, separate and distinct. You know, and so no, no other players from the club are allowed to invade my my practice. And I use the word invade purposely. You know, even teams from your own club and players from your own club are viewed as the enemy to your team unit. You know, and, you know, it's the coach has this fiefdom mentality, you know, and, and they're going to, you know, be in charge of their clan, you know. And so, you know, and people from outside are not welcomed in most clubs. You know, in fact, clubs aren't really cut clubs, you know, because a club is a friendly place where everybody, you know, relates to each other. And, you know, it's got this this really nice feeling to it. You know, if you're really in a club, well, we've really got a club, you know, and players are welcome to come from other teams because we are purely and only focused on developing the individual to optimize their potential. You know, we win a lot because we do that, not because we're trying to play a tactical system to win. And that's the key difference is that we are, and funnily enough, this has all been done before, in the streets of Ashington, England. Great point. It was done before. 
because Bobby Charlton was a talented individual. So when Bobby Charlton was five years of age, he didn't go out and play with other five-year-olds. He was playing with the ten-year-olds. Hundred percent. You know, because he was such a talented individual. You know, and so he was encouraged to play where he could make a difference. You know, it wasn't encouraged probably to play with the sixteen-year-olds because that was just a bridge too far for Bobby at that age. You know, but he was always encouraged to push himself to the very limits by playing up an age group or two. You know, and that's something that we don't hear because we've got this incredibly parochial mentality towards even our teams within our clubs. And it's incredibly damaging mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, the optimization of individual potential for every player, whether that's the best player in the group, as you were mentioning just now, yep. or whether that's the weakest player in the group. It's incredibly damaging to have this parochial mentality. Well, and it it break down it breaks down barriers that exist within a club structure and a club ethos. And I I I I, I, I I'm going, not going on a limb here, but our club does this better than anybody in the entire country, perhaps the entire world, in terms of breaking down walls so players can go hop in sessions all the time. My own son, a eight 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 year old Cal, will hop in with with Philippe sessions from time to time when he's there on the sideline with when I'm coaching my my daughter's team. Um, and Philippe sessions are 2009. It's four years up now. Is Cal hopping in and playing one v ones against Philippe's kids? No, they're way too good for that. But in certain bits of the session, Cal will hop in. Philippe say, Yeah, sure, come on, right? And it creates an opportunity where the kids can all play and and they see that they're a part of the club instead of a part of a team. And that and that I think is is a pretty significant change. Um, uh, increasing access and optimizing development for kids in total. I think the, the key here is what we always talk about. Winning is good, feels good, but it's not, doesn't need to be what's going to be in the driver's seat. It's not, it's, it, it's not the, en the end goal for these kids. These kids need to be developed. They need to become the better version of themselves on and off the field that they can possibly be. So there are kids that they're going to mature later. They're going to be younger because of the calendar year and the way the system works and all these factors. And obviously that kid won't in games produce and impact the game in a way that a kid that is older, it will, or it's bigger, faster, stronger because they matured because at age 12, they hit the pu puberty and they, you know, became pretty much grown into their adult body. So what's the right thing to do? Yes, that kid won't impact the game. He won't win me the championship, but he's good. That's where he belongs. That's where he needs to be. You keep him there. You give him the opportunity to train with those kids, to be part of it. And whenever they get there physically, and they, they will have developed. I think that's one thing that um, most clubs don't do because they want to win. And not only here in America, back in Brazil, it's the same thing. The coaches of these academy teams, sometimes their jobs are, their performance is measured by their wins. You know, they didn't win the U15 Rio State Cup. You know, they got to watch out for the next one because if they don't win again, they might put somebody else that will win. So... Yes, the, the, he's looking for his job. He doesn't have time to waste on this younger kid, this small kid. He's very talented, but it's so small. He won't be able to impact the game yet. So he's going to get the other kid that is big, strong, fast, not as talented. He knows that that kid at age 17, 18 has no shot of going pro, but it's going to give him the result now. So a lot of a lot of coaches end up doing that. And that's the thing that happens a ton in Brazil. You see kids that... You know, they are phenoms, U13, U15, U17. And then when they get to the under 20, the other kids caught up with their physical advantage. and They, they, they don't make it through, you know, so and it's a disservice for all these kids. So listen to this. I'm reading a book now that is about Leo Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, after he moved to Barcelona, you know, they were haggling for a long time over his contract. And there was a subsection of the, you know, the power base at Barcelona did not want to pay Leo Messi, you know, a reasonable amount of money because they just didn't see him being able to be competitive in, in first team soccer. Leo so Messi, small? because he was small, <laughs> you know, Leo Messi, you know, so we're talking about, you know, literally in statistical terms, the greatest of all time, if you include assists as well as goals, you know, 
And these people that were oriented towards bigger, faster, stronger, nearly gave up, you know, the best player in the history of world soccer. There are so many stories. Like it, it's incredible, isn't it? Mm -hmm. There are so yeah. many stories. Talk about prejudice. Back yeah. in Brazil of kids that, like, Kaká. Kaká nev never really started as a youth player. Then when he got to U18, U19, U20, he became a very good player and then made it to the first team. 17 years old, he was in the World Cup. But before that, he didn't even really start. Robinho, he wasn't like a major star in Santos until he grew a little bit more and then all of a sudden, 16 years old, he's doing eight scissors before being kicked out in the box in, in the in the final, you in, know? In a weird way, it may be an advantage to be small if you stick with it, if you if fight, you, if, if you battle, if you continue to use your skill. And, and you're but there's a big, there's a lot of ifs there. And if and there's somebody, access. and if, yeah. exactly, if there's somebody that believes in you, it's like, although right. this kid is not going to give me anything right now, he has the potential three, four, five years from now. Right. So they keep that kid there. And that's why in Brazil, there are two clubs that have, are for me the biggest example of develop, developing players. It's Santos, Pelé, Neymar, Robinho. Uh, and I'm talking more in the last 20 years, Santos has developed so many players, Neymar and so on, lots of them. And Fluminense, those two, they developed so many, so many, so many players in the last 20 years. And that's their focus. They they look at the what the kids might do when they're 18, 19, 20. They're not looking what the kids are going to do like right now. So it started like these clubs have been producing way more players than any other club uh, in Brazil in the last 20 years be just because of that. They're not, they're, they're keeping kids in the roster that they're not going to play. They're not going to impact games. They're going to keep them there. They're going to develop, develop, develop them. And it's working and the other clubs they are doing everything to win the U13, U15 they're not developing as many players guess who's making more money Fluminense and Santos because then they develop one player they so, sell them and boom that's how they fund their whole program I did an internship for Fluminense when I was in Rio uh, for three months during uh, one of my college uh, summer breaks and they literally had a map of Brazil on the wall I was in the scouting department. They had a map, and there were pins in literally every little town. In the ho the whole map was pins, because they had always guys going all over. They had guys in every little corner of Brazil just looking for players, looking for towns. And every week, 30, 40, 50 new kids coming in, and they look, boo boo boo, boo stay with three, four the whole year coming in. So it's, it's crazy. They, they're looking for it. They're trying to give the chance to the talent. And I think that's the problem. Some kids are not going to have the most impacting games, but they got to be given the shot because in the future, they will impact even more if they have the shot in the first hand. As we, as we talk about like solutions specific to the United States and youth soccer in the United States, which I, and I think is largely our audience, um, like, you know, one is opening up your practice. I mean, obviously, buying into 1v1s and 2v2s gives you a platform to be able to include a wide variety of kids in ages and ability levels and tailor the session in two-minute two increments to maximize, to optimize their developmental pathway. Um, it, but we've also talked about um, uh, something that I think our club does a really good job is not chop and change teams at tryouts every year. There are kids that will want to get into teams that I coach at tryouts that I won't take and those kids will be better than kids that I currently have but I see no reason there's no value into kicking a kid to the curb that that is improving is keeping up just because some of their kids a little bit faster than he is right and so um, and so we as a club I think have been really good about um, about trying to create environments um, and have a club ethos that, that isn't chopping and changing kids every 12 months of tryout time and, and but the important thing is that these kids that aren't accepted on the team right now that you're talking about is well that they're welcome at practice they're welcome oh, uh, all the time on the developmental side so they they feel part of the club they feel 100%. almost part of the team you know it, it, we're just delaying their inclusion on the team until they've got the skills and moving them in getting them games and you know and guest playing opportunities all that stuff yeah right. i mean but it's Absolutely. why my sessions that i run in my 2013 age group which that team is very good there's only 11 kids on the team 
I've got like 24 kids at practice, right? 27 kids at practice. That's brilliant. I think I had 28 last night, right? right? It's because kids are always welcome into it, so they get more sessions in. Right. right. But then the third one is is, and I think I think that. There, I mean, there's room for growth for our club specifically in all of these areas that we're discussing. But the third one is not necessarily taking our, our most experienced coaches and putting them with the best team and always having them only with the best team, right? Like, it's a, it's a scenario where, you know, the 2010 age group that I coach in, that my son's in, they're a Division Seven team out of nine divisions. And I'm one of the most experienced coaches in the club. And all of the kids on that team have access to me as their coach. And it's not a scenario where, like, Andrew's got the most experience and, and hierarchy in the club. Let's give him the top 2010 team. No, 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 no. I'll coach the seventh team in our club happily. And, You're and, really and slaughtering a sacred cow here, you know that? Because, you know, virtually every other club, you know, in the U.S., you know, it, the coaches have massive egos and the guys that are the highest qualified, you know, they they have to be coaching. And you if, know, the, the, the so, oldest, and the if best, you've done a good job and developed a team for a couple of years, then the 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 top dog comes in and says, "Thanks, off. I'll take it from you." And like right. that just doesn't exist in our club. You know, it's a pecking order. Yeah. It's a hierarchy. You know, and, and we don't have that. No, and the f and the funniest thing is like you got the first team, and you got the second team, right? What should be our goal f for the second team? close the gap, right? Well, if the coach in the first team is much better than the coach in the second team, how is that gap ever going to be closed? So if you put all your top coaches strictly only on top, yes, you will develop 15, 16 players in each age group. Everybody else, you're just not doing the best for but them. But the theme for this whole episode, right, is that if you just develop the top 5% or top 3% of your club, you're limiting access to everybody in your club. And it's such a short-sighted perspective because we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know as a country, as a society, as a soccer culture here in Kansas City or the Midwest or the United States, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know where kids are going to end up. We need the greatest number of players the having the greatest developmental opportunities and the greatest developmental access as possible, which is why we need to increase access for all players of all levels so that we can win a World Cup or take take second place and happily run to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's transition to Serena and Venus Williams. Andy, you would you would specifically I, I I've watched King Richard. It's a fantastic movie. It's super topical now since Will Smith um, lost his head on Sunday. By the way, I should mention um, there was something in the air on Sunday, and really, really good people that rarely lose their head lost their head. Will Smith smacked uh, Chris Rock, and I got kicked out of the game. Oh, I heard about that. <laughs> yeah, so, so apparently it wasn't just Will Smith, but it was also this great person, me, that, that <laughs> lost their head on, on Sunday, <laughs> Sunday evening. Um, but uh, uh, speaking of Serena and Venus Williams um, and their dad, Richard, they – had to fight tooth and nail to get access to tennis. And they are some of, they are perhaps the greatest female tennis players of all time, tennis players of all time. So, you know, bef before we get specifically into Serena and Venus and, and Richard, uh, the downside of being rich Let's <laughs> I'm going to like this list. <laughs> that's that, that's, that's, that's why I feel really good about me. But, that, that's a very, <laughs> but that's a very important topic. Yeah, oh, for sure. So, so um, in a payback trick on the rich, high-income families rarely raise great athletes. Golf. Go golf. They've got to be the best. Name, name an athlete in golf. Tiger Woods. Oh, okay. He wasn't wealthy. It, it, low socioeconomic. Yeah. 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 You know, and, you know, hunger. Uh, soccer. None, none of them were wealthy. All of them. <laughs> Top 100. I, I've got Leo Messi, CR7, and Maradona. <laughs> none of them. You know, yeah. and yeah. I mean, Maradona came from absolute, you know, dirt poor mm -hmm. shantytown. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, um, track. You know, so let's go with sprints. Track. Boat. Usain Bolt. Where'd he come from? Jamaica. Jamaica. The slums okay. of Jamaica. Know, yeah. yeah, the slums of Jamaica. I'm going to go, you won't know this guy, but you know, I'm going to go with rugby. You know, and I was educated in Wales. Morgan Freeman. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and you know, the guys that I went to college with worshipped a rugby player called Barry John. You know, blue collar to the max. 
How so many teeth? How many teeth? How many teeth did he have in his mouth? I, you know, he, w- he was a, a, a counting one hand. He was a back. <laughs> he, he ran with the ball. He wasn't in the scrum. You know, uh, as a kid, I was in the scrum because I was. So he wasn't a hooker. Yeah, that was me as a kid, and I got brutalized. That's the only position I know. I was the little guy in the scrum, and with the quick feet, that's the only reason I was there. Is there there a guy that just kicks? Barry John, yeah, well, no, he has to play the rest of the game. But but Barry John, uh, you know, was was a working-class boy. Um, So uh, football, quarterbacks. Patrick Mahomes. Let's, let's, Let's go with, you know, somebody that over a long term has proven himself. Tom Brady. Tom Brady, yeah. Working class San Mateo, California boy. You know, I mean, um, <laughs> the list goes on. Obviously, tennis, the Williams sisters, yeah. you know, a dynasty, you know, and, you know, I mean, just ghetto LA. So the point that you you're know. making is that regardless. Basketball. Don't, don't interrupt. This is basketball. Well, I, I, I see a lot of notes. <laughs> <questions. laughs> I want to make sure we get through them all. Basketball. Uh, we don't need to go down uh, cricket and all that, Michael all the Jordan, sports, it's, it's lacrosse. Not just the no. It's everybody underneath them, you know. Baseball, this is a good one. Baseball is not a real sport, Andy. Uh, well, but, but even so, even so, you know, <laughs> agree with you. But even so, <laughs> uh, baseball, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth, orphan. See, orphan. You, you haven't seen this list. Yeah. Right. Where did he grow up? Orphan. Uh, in an orphan. But, but where? What? What? But where did he grow up? Uh, in the city, in was it New York? I'm not sure. Baltimore. Baltimore. Guess what right. it was called? This is brilliant. Um, Pig town. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, can you? But the, the point you're making is by making the sport uh, not accessible for for low-income people or limiting the number of low-income people that can ex- access the greatest part, the greatest development within the sport. We're shooting ourselves in the foot when it comes to finishing second in a World Cup. Just, just, just an example. Back in Brazil, I lived the other side of the coin. The coin. I wasn't a kid for, for, from the favelas. I wasn't poor. I was a middle-class kid. Soccer was le- at the highest level was less available for me. Really? For two reasons. Number one, if I would want to play in an academy, I would have to drop out of school. Ah. My parents would never yeah, let me do, drop yeah. out of school because, obviously, the risk is too high. Now, the kids that are playing the academy, the kids from the favelas and from the northeast of Brazil they're coming to live in Rio away from their family to try to play yes they don't go to school because if they go to public school system there's no way they're gonna get they're barely gonna learn how to write and read so for them it's the opposite they don't care about school they go to soccer because it's their best chance so for me it wasn't the risk would be too high for me to try to have soccer, and for them it was the, the only the only hope. So, so and and who and who and who are the kids that make the top, in in, in sports are the kids that need it because they will have the extra motivation because they really need it. So those are the kids that need more access, not the kids that you know. And that's the I problem disagree. with the. I disagree with that I'm not statement. Sure about that statement. I, th- yeah. I think it's whoever has access. Whoever has access I think is every going kid to needs succeed. It. Yes, yeah. right, but like you the know. kids that are going to succeed are the kids that have access. And if every kid has access, then there's going to be examples across across the socioeconomic status of people that succeed. In the United right. States, rich kids, middle-class kids succeed because that's who have access to it, they, right? They, In Brazil, it sounds like poor people succeed because that's who has access to it. And, and here's the thing. You, you need it for different reasons. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, deal with this here. Is, uh, this is higher income privilege. Okay. Notice the theme. Money, bad. Blue collar, good. What does that mean? Richer kids have more easier options. And richer families try to find shortcuts. But the end result is usually loss of development because there's no substitute for hunger and developing the great skills that come with spending more time doing what you need to do to escape the favelas of Brazil, or wherever it is, the slums of London, England, where my dad's family grew up. My Uncle Vic played for Napoli, grew up playing in the slums of England. So, um, you know, there is no substitute for being that blue-collar kid 
that develops great skills, a brave creative leadership attitude, and a fantastic work ethic because they are in the down and dirty phase or place in society. You know, so they just have to work harder. You know, but the white collar kid doesn't. They go home to a semi mansion. You know, they, you know, they've got a choice of you know going and sweating and you know and and working hard at soccer practice or getting involved in a street game, or going playing golf at Mission Hills Country Club. <laughs> what are they going to choose to do? You know, it's you know one is dirty, it's sweaty, it's ugly, and it maybe you know every now and again involves a fist fight. You know, a Mission Hills. Favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Will Smith getting jiggy yeah. with it. I doubt that you see many fist fights in the clubhouse at the Mission Hills Country Club. It's you know, and by the way, you know that's the club you know, that slap Tom Watson, like, a, like on the stage, Tom Watson Oscars. grew up. <laughs> yeah, Tom Watson grew up playing, yeah. you know, at, and his son Michael is a parent in our club right now. You know, that's the club that Michael grew up. You know, playing that he was a he was a good soccer player. He, he was a good soccer player. Yeah. He didn't play for the Legends Club. Guest yeah. played for me a couple of times, yeah. but uh, but Michael's now got his kids in our club because he recognizes that his kids need the skill. They need they need the blue collar work ethic. Yeah. They need to fight and battle and scrap, and you know th- they need both sides of the coin. You know, if they're going to be successful in life, you know, and he's very aware that you know that that you cannot be born and brought up a silver spooner and hope to optimize your genetic potential. I I appreciate that statement specifically in light of, I I also would argue that there is no club or there's no training environment that is more blue collar than our training environment, right? Like kids show up to our sessions and play knockdown, drag out, dog eat dog, one V one, two, two and a half, three, three and a half, four minutes long, two minute rest, four minutes long, two minute rest, four minutes long. That is the best environment to develop the best parts of blue, a blue to- blue collar character, right? And in the United States, when it's largely a middle class sport, the kids need it even more so than, than perhaps they do in, 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 in Brazil or, or, or different countries and different cultures. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think our best, my best ever player was Chad Desler. And, uh, you know, it, we've got him on tape in one of our videos saying, so yeah, he was so absolutely brilliant, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, he was tough, you know, his mentality he motivated people around him as well as scoring goals and stopping people on the dirty side of the ball and just doing it, being very complete, you know, just a really brave, creative leader, you know, and, um, you know, and, and Chad in one of the videos uh, said we used to do one-on-ones and two-on-twos day in and day out, week in and week out. And, and he used this word and I thought it was brilliant. He said it was gruesome yeah, <laughs> and, but you know here i made a note that you know make soccer tough and that's what one-on-ones and two-on-twos do but so much fun that the higher income kid the blue collar kids are going to do it anyway because they're kind of used to it <laughs> but the higher income kid wants to be at practice more than anything else because when you're one on one or you're working box soccer in you know in you know in, in a little box and you're hitting thousands of shots, you know it, it, it's gruesome. You know your tongue is dragging. You know there's no chance for a break. You're getting kicked and pushed, and but it's like a video game while you're boxing. You know it's you, it's fun. You know you're shooting, you're tackling. You know you're in you're right in the center of the universe. You know for three minutes at a time going mano a mano against somebody that's a, a worthy opponent, you know. And when you're done, there's an incredible feeling of self-worth. And interestingly enough, there's a massive amount of gambling-like stimulation in the one-on-one because you're seeing instant rewards. And it's like being in, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the casino, you know, and putting money in the machine and hearing the things, you know, dinging and, and banging and, you know, and there's always the chance you can, you know, hit the jackpot. Well, there's always the chance you can do a move and score a goal or you make a great tackle and you're always in the clutch. You're always right there in the key part of the game where it's you, somebody else in the ball, you know, and it's incredible fun, motivation, much in the same way as gambling releases dopamine. You know, what we do releases dopamine mm-hmm. and reinforces, I want to be there, even though it's gruesome. 
I want to build off of that, challenge you in one word, which is fun. I, I find as a coach that kids that join our sessions from a 1v1 and 2v2 perspective early on find it to be very fun because it's so much more engaging and stimulating than anything else. But then it, as a former player, I wouldn't have described it as fun, but I would have described it as valuable of the self-worth that I felt at the end of every round, at the end of every night, the stimulation, the instant rewards that existed within hard work. All of that was valuable to me, but I don't know that I would have described it as fun. And, and what we're saying is... It's too is, hard to be fun. You know, meaningful fun. Meaningful fun. Good point. Good you know, point. And, and which of the two... You know, and I'm going to use this on air. Orgasmic moments of the game of soccer. You know, which of the two orgasmic moments of the game of soccer? Yeah, bearing a the ball in the back and of the goal and a save. Net. No. Well, you know, a save, yes, but it's only a tiny fraction of the players that experience that. Burying the ball in the back of the net and then just skinning somebody and beating them off a dribble. Exactly. You know, you, you do, you know, my, my daughter, she's got this drag Maradona that's to die for, you know, and she comes out of that and you can see, you know, after she's completed the play, whether she scored or not, she's got this smile on her face. You know, she gets an immense high from just absolutely laying a defender down, you know, and there's one clip, and I put it up again this week on my Facebook, and yeah, friend me on it, you know, on Facebook, Andy Barney, I'm up there, and you can see all these clips, but, you know, she does this drag Maradona, um, well, first she receives the ball with a Cruyff and destroys the defender that was right on her back. You know, then the next move, she does a drag Maradona and destroys the defender. And then the first defender recovered to cover the other defender. She defeats her again with another Maradona, and then she does a fake shot, and the defender leaps, you know, you know in response to the fake shot, and then she scores. You know, and, you know, it's an incredible sequence. You know, and she still feels that moment of ecstasy when she sees that clip on video, you know, and I do too, and I'm a proud dad, you know, and so it's vicarious as well, you know, and why aren't we giving our kids those moments? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, let's do rondos. <laughs> I mean, come on, let's pass the ball around, you know, and, and these are the players that make the big difference. It's not showing off, you know, it's there for a reason is you can beat one or two players and put the ball in the net and the rest of the game is a stalemate. We see them all the time. Zero-zero ties, one-one ties, you know, ugly goals, own goals, decide the game. You know, and then you have this incredible player like Leo Messi or Diego Maradona that can turn a game in an instant, you know, and we watch that clip for decades. Yeah. You know, that Diego Maradona scoring against England. You know, I mean, you know, I hated it and I loved it. 1986 World Cup final, I'm English. You know, he scores against my team and I'm applauding. I'm on my feet applauding you know i mean i had the moment of ecstasy you know at the same time as experienced total depression it was really weird because you know it, it, you you're you're seeing you know nirvana you know you you you've you've actually entered the kingdom of god through the Holy Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> you can always go further i love it <laughs> <laughs> but but bringing, coming back around to the, the socio-economic piece to it all, if you, I mean, if you can friend Andy on Facebook, Andy Barney, you can follow Legend Soccer Clubs on Facebook or Instagram, you can follow Coaching Inside the Box on all of those as well, and we post quite a bit of highlights of kids, but there was a highlight you shared, and I can't remember his name, he's, uh, 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 he's African, but he does that like quadruple scissors that just completely destroys a player, and then bears, I think you posted the highlight like three or four days ago. Lucky. Lucky, but Lucky's a Perfect example. Oh, it was at least six. It was between six oh my and seven. God. I mean, it was. Like, it it, was it's so the most incredible scissors clip I've ever seen. <laughs> it was sturdy. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was gruesome to use Deschler's. Yeah, and this is a legends player that did it. Yeah, you know? a legends player and, and, of low socio. socio and the defender didn't make any mistakes. That's the thing. Is oh, that? Yeah. But by the time Lucky had done his six step over his scissors. You know, the defender had melted down. You know, his, his brain was porridge. <laughs> <laughs> he was done. But, but we have, over the, especially over the last few years in the club, had so many players of lower socioeconomic status as part of our club that have trained three and four and five nights a week just in our facility. They're facility rats and playing in teams. Um, and it's increasing access for players like that that has, has really, um, I think, benefited our community as a whole. Oh, for sure. We... I mean, my my team is a is a challenging team because I've, we're doing national leagues and travel and go to St. Louis and go to Illinois to play and blah blah blah, blah and we got a scholarship and 
you know, raise money, fundraise. Um, getting ready to raffle a ball signed with, from all the Comets players to raise money. I mean, we're just trying to be creative to give these kids the opportunity to play at the highest level that they deserve to play. They're good enough. They're, you know, they're playing well and they're they're reaching that level of play and they gotta be able to keep doing it and not have the socioeconomic socioeconomic barrier there and tell them no. You know? I mean, if you look at the national team, the U.S. men's national team currently. Uh, the people of color on the team, like you look at every team sheet, right? It's so great, which is wonderful. But but our y- our youth game is not reflecting that, and our, certainly our and that's staff the direction that we got to yeah. that the U.S. needs to go towards. You, it has to find a way, and it costs money. It's an investment, but that's how you're gonna find the players. And again, that's how the the academies make money, you know, because. You sell one player for the tens of millions, you you're set, you know. So I, I I couldn't agree more. But you know, here again, there's the other side of this coin. You know, and you know, we're we're focusing on the underprivileged, you know, section of society, right? You know, we need to really feel sorry for the wealthy. We really do, and and I'm serious about this, because the downside of the upside. You're wealthy, right? Advantage and wealth undermines character because it makes life too easy. Inherited wealth creates a coast in mentality. It also builds a fear of losing image. Being seen to lose really hurts wealthy people that are privileged. They have to be seen to win. You know, and it undermines the work ethic. They don't have to make it happen, like the you know, the, the, the blue collar kid. Uh, the greatest welfare program, and listen to this very carefully, the greatest welfare program in world history is inherited wealth and privilege. Think about that for a second. You know, I'm a kid. I've coasted through. Everything I've done because I live in a mansion, I'm part of the country club, you know, nothing in my life has been, you know, really, really hard. You know, I've got all the advantages. You know, when my parents die, they leave millions. That's the greatest welfare program in world history. All my kids know I'm not leaving them anything. I've told them, don't expect a dime from me when I die. You've got to make it on your own. And I might outlive you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> in, uh, in our club, and this is the solution, everybody starts equal, everybody's treated like they're equal, we all have massive opportunity, and everyone earns their altitude within the club based upon effort and measurable performance, and it's done every single practice. We measure performance every single practice. So you don't get a day off from this blue-collar having to prove yourself every single practice mentality. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. We're going to start wrapping up this episode here soon. One of the 20 things to deal with. Well, that's what I'm, that's what I was getting ready to say is our next episode definitely needs to cover the, um, uh, in, in the prejudice that exists from a gender perspective. And I think this should literally be our next episode in addition to learning styles. Cause you had talked about in some of your notes about uh, learning disabled, but I think learning disi- styles is a broader encompassing of 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 of, of 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 a greater number of people, and I think I think traditionally, regardless of the sport, soccer is our sport. Traditionally, we take such a a very specific approach, and I say we as a as a coaching community to teaching something, and you either get in and figure it out. Or you don't, right? And it's not a varied. It's not varied enough in terms of inclusive enough of a greater of, of a greater number of of, of of people that learn differently. And I think that one v ones and two v twos and the approach that we take and 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 really empowering every individual to the greatest possible degree. I think that 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 approach allows us to 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 give the greatest developmental opportunity 
to the greatest number of 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 of, of uh, varying learning styles, if that makes sense. Um, and I, and I think that you know, yes, physical limitations, yes, financial uh, limitations, yes, gender um, are all important important um, prejudice for us to tackle. But I think learning styles is perhaps the one that has the greatest opportunity um, for tackling. I, I, I love I love the way Anson Dorrance puts it because he uses this this phrase you know he, he calls it boiling it down to its critical essence and what one-on-one and two-on-two does is it boils the game down to the critical essence of attitude you know of confidence of skill of physiological fitness you know and it, it's all encapsulated in this one gruesome but fun, dopamine-inducing, crazy cauldron, bats in a cave environment. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, we will have to cut that and share that specific statement because I think that is a perfect statement that encapsulates one v ones and two v twos and 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 the value of them versus what I remember doing in college all the time at the Division One level. You know, six v six v six keep away, one ball between eighteen, um, where I could just coast and and get through the session without really being challenged if I wanted to, and no one would no one would know because there was 18, 18 of us on the pitch. And right. I could never do that in 1v1. When, Wednesday practice, you got a game on Saturday, you want to rest up a little bit, you know, you don't want to get hurt, you know, your groin already hurts a little bit, yeah, so you just hide on the side. Later. Yeah, <laughs> you know. 100%. You yeah. get a test tomorrow. Yeah, you, 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 do that, you can't do that on a 1v1, absolutely. Whereas in, one, in, 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 in high school on Mondays and Wednesdays, when I knew we were going to be training out at Shawnee Mission South, on the Dust Bowl, because we killed all the grass, it was literally training on an on a baseball field that had dust all around the field and we were breathing that in. It's a wonder I don't have dust cancer if that's a thing. Um, <laughs> but like I couldn't hide, right? Like if I chose to give less than my best in that session, I was gonna end up minus 42 because Jesse Baker and Colby Parks and Brian Williams were just gonna literally eat me for lunch and spit who, me who out. Who was the sadistic coach that made you do that? You were, oh, while, you, while, you, wait. while you sat just outside <laughs> of the dust cloud <laughs> on a bag of balls. No, no, I sat in my car. <laughs> <laughs> I had the air conditioning on. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, very good. Well, um, guys, every episode is is an enjoyable episode, and and those of you that are listening, I'm really enjoying hearing from you. I've got two messages that I need to to respond to. One, I think, in New Jersey, and the other one in Georgia that have just come through in the last 24, 36 hours. Um, if you have questions, if you want more access to content, reach out. Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, I've made a renewed focus. There's four or five posts on each of those every week. Um, Andy, four or five posts every hour um, on his own personal Facebook account. Sometimes um, the same post. Sometimes the same post <laughs> a couple old, times. Guys, He's getting old, which it. is respect, <laughs> respectable. But uh, you know, if you, if you didn't like it the first time, 10 minutes later, he'll post it again. Um, Philippe uh, has been just I've forgotten absolutely. both of your names. You <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Philippe, sorry. Philippe has been crushing the Legends Instagram and Facebook pages um, with really great content, and 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 what I'm what we're trying to do is not just show highlights, right? But show you know actual sequences that exist in the game. I think a, a video that I shared earlier this week was my 2012 team, and it was one kid um, uh, tried to step over into a Maradona and lost the ball out of bounds. The next kid um, got the ball, brand new to me, three or four months old, tried a Cruyff that was has a ways to go before it's perfect and then a merit or a scissors before losing it before jack finally got it did a scissors and then buries it in the back of the net that's what our sequences look like it's a lot of failure before success um and i think that's important for you as as coaches and parents to to see and understand and embrace because i posted one the so other day that i loved it too it was a kid that received the ball from the keeper inside the box immediate pressure right away pulled an l turn inside its own box right in front of the goal <laughs> pulled the l turn outside Dribbled down the line, made a penetrating pass. The kid, the striker didn't score, but you know, got a He's shot a, off. The striker's a legends kid, so he probably didn't expect a pass. Yeah. No. <laughs> so do you do you remember about a year ago? You know, you you made fun of me because I hesitated for a few moments too long, and you just crucified crucified me on a national audience for doing that. Do you remember that? I have no memory of that. Yeah, because no. you know, I I remember it well because I was the one that suffered as a result. 
You just said a player was three or four months old. <laughs> Did I really? Yeah. Three or four months old in their legends day. Okay, okay. Uh, so touche. I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> well, I've got. So they just keep backing up because the you know it's only a couple months ago you were bald. You look like Uncle Fester. <laughs> oh yeah, your your hair grew quick. It did grow you, quick. You should it's a wig. You should. <laughs> you should teach Kyle that technique. <laughs> Those power alleys coming in strong. Last request I have is wherever you're listening to this podcast, give it a, a review, a like, a upvote, whatever those things are. Those really do matter. They help um, expand the audience and grow the listenership. And if you wouldn't mind, share the podcast with one person. It, whatever platform you have, there's a share button somewhere in there. Hit share, copy the link, text it to a friend or two and say, hey, you should listen to this. So, so before we finish, we'd appreciate though, that. Yeah. All right, uh, um, I was playing with uh, an ex-England under-21 international called Stan Cummins one time. And, um, and, and Stan was running down the field you know, right in front of me. This was indoors in Kansas City because he finished his career in Kansas City. And right in front of the whole bench, you know, and there's a lot of people on the bench because it's indoor, and, and his hair flew up. <laughs> no way. <laughs> like, like my hand is now, his hair flew up you know, at a right angle to the rest of his skull. And, and everybody on the bench realized that he had a toupee. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, the bench came and he turned around to face the bench and he got hold of his toupee in a, and he said, how's about that then, guys and gals? Which is, which is a, a, a take off of a comedian that we grew up with in England, quick as a wig and just laughed at himself. You know, and because he was wearing a toupee, and none of us knew that he'd been wearing a toupee <laughs> all that time. We thought he had hair. <laughs> you should have known better, because I feel like I've seen I've seen photos of him playing professionally in England. I can't remember what clubs he played for, but big clubs without hair. Oh, we thought he'd use Rogaine. Oh, okay, you know? Rogaine in the eighties. <laughs> yes, yes. Very good. Well, uh, thank you for listening. Share this with somebody. We'd appreciate it, and we'll see you again in a couple weeks. Thanks, see you guys. Bye. Bye.